Welcome back, everybody. Good to have you with us here on the Mark Steiner Show on WEAA. Right now, it's the home of the Big 4-0 Birthday Bash. I want you to join us Saturday, the 28th of January this week. More information at WEA.org. We begin our program today to looking at uh, what the Trump presidency has meant in its first days, the things that we have seen uh, from his pushing this idea of illegal votes, now saying he's going to investigate it. What does that mean? Investigate what? With what? Uh, even his own Republican Party members are challenging him on that. Uh, still obsessed with the notion of sow- size and crowd, uh, crowd size, said he's signing orders to make sure the wall gets built. We have his, um, with the, despite some uh, intervention in Congress, we've seen his um, cabinet nomination sail through in many ways. Uh, Betsy DeVos is up, and of course, the Scott Pruitt uh, thing starts today and goes through this week. Uh, we saw that uh, Democrats, Sherrod Brown, Van Hollen, Elizabeth Warren, and others, all giving Ben Carson the nod, uh, and uh, which is interesting in itself. The Keystone Pipeline is going to become a reality again, according to Trump. Uh, and, of course, DAPL, the, the battle over the pipeline in the Dakotas, uh, is going to be back on the table again with full vigor. And we had millions of me- women and men across America uh, marching and um, uh, and over the weekend. And the question is, where, do everybody, where does it go from here? There is the the path of the political establishment and what's going to happen inside Congress, but there seems to be very little that they can do, maybe I'm wrong about that, uh, to block things that Trump wants to do. But then there's also outside what those millions of people meant in America. Uh, can there be a progressive uh, um, movement that actually has, can actually mount a opposition to what's about to happen and also build more than opposition to build something on those millions of people who walked? So we're here with Baksar Sunkara. Uh, who is founding editor of the Jack, of Jacobin, senior editor, and in these times, Boxer, welcome back. Good to have you with us. Thank you so much for having us. Rose Aguilar, a colleague out in the West Coast, host of your call radio at KALW in San Francisco. Rose, good to have you with us as well. Hi, Mark. And I think shortly we'll be joined by Charles Ellison, uh, national correspondent for WEAA, uh, and also host and host the Ellison Report who writes also for The Root. But do join us here at 410-319-8888. Write to us here at talk.steinershow.org by email. Tweet us at Mark Steiner. Log on to our Facebook pages, but do join us. So, you know, Rose, I've been watching the stuff you've been covering on KLW, um, and uh, it really is kind of this this alarming place people find themselves in. Um, There's just gigantic demonstrations over the weekend but that doesn't necessarily translate into any kind of firm opposition to what's going on. And the minority Democrats in the House and Congress seem, well, at this point, almost incapable of stopping anything that's going through. Though there is some dissent in the Republican side as well. So how do you analyze it? Uh, there's just so much going on. And if your listeners can't keep up, you're not alone. I mean, even <laughs> every single day, we cannot keep up. And, you know, it's so important to note, Mark, and to not forget that the media created Donald Trump, and now he doesn't need them, and he's taking them for a ride. And all of these things about crowd size and voter fraud, I mean, this is such a major distraction from the real issues. Yesterday, people across the country protested in front of congressional offices to pressure these politicians to vote no on Donald Trump's nominees. There has been an awakening that we have not seen in my lifetime I was at the march on Saturday. I interviewed so many people who have never, ever been on the streets before. You were in the march and here in D.C. or the march out in San Francisco? Oh, in San, yeah, in San Francisco. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just checking. Yeah, never, yeah. ever been involved in politics before. People are hungry. They want to figure out how to get involved. 
Now, what's really interesting about these nominations is, you know, the Democrats, even if they all voted no, and a few of them are voting no, they can't stop this. They need three Republicans to vote no also. So most of these nominees are probably going to go through. Uh, Betsy DeVos is going to take place. That vote is on the 31st. And Senator Dianne Feinstein from California delayed the vote for Jeff Sessions to next week. But, I mean, Rex Tillerson most likely is going to become Secretary of State. And I just thought the coverage on Rex Tillerson was so shallow. Antonia Juhas wrote a must-read piece that's on the cover of In These Times called The United States of Exxon. And it looks at all of the human rights abuses that Exxon uh, took part in. In fact, there are countless lawsuits against this company for unsafe working conditions, investor fraud, destruction of the environment, climate and public health, support of dictators. I mean, this did not come up in the hearing, and it really didn't get that much media attention. So that's a really important story to read. I would recommend step back, take the time to read a couple of long articles about what's going on. Because if you go online and you read bits and pieces, you're just going to be completely overwhelmed. And we'd also welcome, uh, before, uh, before we turn to Boxer, Charles Ellison, who's uh, joining us. Charles, good to have you with us. We introduced you earlier. Glad you're here. Um, hey, thanks for having me. Always good to have you here, man. So, and Boxer, let me let you also weigh in with your analysis of where you think this is and where it goes. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's, it's really, I mean, none of this should come as a surprise given what we saw during the campaign. I guess there was hopes by some that Trump would kind of be reined in by handlers, that basically at this point, Paul Ryan would more or less be in charge of not just the policy, but also a lot of Trump's uh, messaging. But it seems like he's really doubling down on on some of this, you know, rhetoric and this this lie about the, the popular vote, um, you know, and, and so on is the most is the most obvious. Um, you know, as far as as policy though, you know, I think a lot of what we've seen from Trump so far, at least, is nothing more than a Republican administration on steroids. I mean, I, I think we shouldn't forget how bad, you know, an average Republican administration is and how, you know, right-wing it is compared to other center-right parties around the around the world. So the real impact of a Trump administration, the immediate impact of the uh, appointments to the National Labor Relations Board, of having, um, you know, a, a cabinet aligned with corporate um, executives and those, those interests and so on, I mean, those, um, of course, the Supreme, the pending, you know, Supreme Court, um, you know, nomination were surely to get, um, you know, a very conservative Supreme Court justice. You know, this would be the case with basically any Republican um, nominated. What seems to me one of the more interesting stories of the first week is the fact that Trump's um, extremely populist tone that he took in his inauguration speech and his continued use of this bombastic rhetoric and these lies and so on really does contrast with the concrete proposals that he's um, put out, which has been more or less what a um, you know regular conventional Republican approach would be like. His his big um, you know infrastructure um, plan that he revealed a couple of months ago um, you know is largely built around tax cuts and 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 things of that nature. It's not quite what Steve Bannon and some of the more economic populists in his uh, circle would would uh, want. So, you know, obviously it's very alarming. And it, at certain levels, um, you know, it, it's shocking to see what directions this can kind of go in in Trump's rhetoric and, and how he'll rile up his supporters. But for now, things are bad. But 
I think, bad in a way that we could have expected and bad in a way that a lot of Republican administrations are. And Charles Ellison, your, your analysis before we jump into some questions from our listeners and myself mm-hmm. here. Right. So the first week definitely uh, has been very alarming, but it's exactly what we expected. Uh, we expected it because we understand the type of person, uh, the type of candidate that Trump was throughout the entire year. He said everything that he's been doing up to this point, uh, he did say he would do during the course of the campaign. And so, you know, what we're seeing now is Trump, the consummate campaigner. And so he's blending his campaign style, blending what he feels worked for him rather well, and it did in 2016 and uh, blending, collapsing that or folding that into his governance style. So we're going to see a president who's going to be constantly campaigning, who's going to be constantly reinforcing messaging from that 2016 campaign so he can maintain uh, his very, what he feels right now at this point is his very loyal base, you know, those few folks who showed up at inauguration. So, uh, you know, he, he feels right now at this point that politically, there is no, there's no threat to him. There's, you know, congressional Republicans are feeling the exact same way. They feel a bit emboldened. Uh, they weren't threatened by the, the, the massive show of humanity that came out uh, last Saturday, you know, as far as the, the women's march and the, the millions of people, the nearly four million people that marched in multiple cities. To them, that's not an existential political threat. And so um, they're going to continue to function um, with that mindset. They're going to continue functioning uh, moving forward in, in that respect. I think what's also alarming is the way that uh, Democrats, particularly congressional Democrats, are not responding, are not reacting. I mean, there just is not any sort of coherent political blueprint um, to that, 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 that stages any sort of um, stiff resistance against what what this administration is is proposing and implementing, um, and what congressional Republicans are putting forward as well, and so that that's rather alarming. That you know, 2017 has the potential for Democrats to experiment with a sort of mobilization, getting ready for the 2018 congressional midterms and state legislative races. Uh, but there's just no sign at all at the moment that they're moving in that direction. And, and, and that's, that's, that's a cause for some concern there, too. So, so let, me, let me, before we open the phones here, and Ken, you're the first caller up, and we're going to come to your call in just in a minute. But I, so here we are. I think the reality is politically that, um, that there'll be very little to, to stand in the way of, of what Donald Trump, the Republicans, want to do on Capitol Hill uh, and in the White House. I mean, we're looking at what that might mean in terms of uh, what's happening in around Dapple uh, and the pipeline, the reopening of Keystone, what it means for this, this question of illegal votes is interesting when you look at the polls, uh, that uh, that 60% of Republicans believe that illegal immigrants act, voted um, uh, and that 43%, 43% believe that people use dead people's names to vote, even though many, many people in the Republican leadership in the House and the Senate uh, are dismayed by, by by how to handle this and 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 kind of the, what this ego push means, uh, but then so so this does beg the question, Rose, of this what what people do from here. I mean, if um, you know that that whatever people say about the Democrats, that 
one of the reasons that these pipelines didn't go through was because of a massive demonstrations and people standing up uh, both around the, the, the native resistance that happened with DAPLA and also with, um, uh, with, with, with stopping the Keystone and other things that have happened, how Black Lives Matter was paid attention to uh, because of the push that was made and they had a hard time ignoring it, but we're not there anymore. You know, and as Jossie Ross uh, just tweeted in, who is um, uh, has been a guest on the show numerous times and is a, as a political commentator and author, Native American from Washington State, said, if this president does not respect the rule of law treaties, consultation, court orders, we have an obligation, an obligation to become ungovernable, Jossie Ross says in his tweet. So where does this all take us, Rose? A thousand people gathered in front of the White House last night to protest these executive orders. People mobilized right away. I think it was two hours before, and they got together. And Earth Justice just released a statement saying that they're probably going to take the Trump administration to court. So what you're going to have to do is obviously a two-pronged approach. Continued resistance on the streets and lawsuits by all of these organizations. They're going to be so busy over the next four years. And I just want to mention, Mark, because I was on your show talking about Standing Rock. Right. And I took two trips out there. And, you know, I think it's also so important to think about the water protectors who are dealing right now with very deep trauma. I mean, I met a lot of natives who had never been involved in any action before. People already living on the margins, camping in freezing weather, and then being pepper sprayed, attacked by dogs, hit with cold water. I mean, they're dealing with very deep trauma. And when the Obama administration made that announcement late last year about the pipeline and the fact that we needed more studies, people felt like, okay, we, we did this. We, we were victorious. And then they got hit in the gut yesterday. We knew it was coming. But the difference, I think, with Donald Trump is he is taking the White House at a time when so many extreme Republicans control state houses across the country these extreme Republicans are a very different breed of Republican that we saw under George W. Bush. So you've got Republicans who control state houses across the country. I mean, the Dems got hammered. Not only did Hillary Clinton lose the Electoral College, but so many Republicans across the country lost. And the Democrats have still not had an honest conversation about why that happened. So you're going to see massive extreme bills passing across the country with ALEC, I mean, ALEC is working again, the American Legislative Exchange Council. Those bills that we saw that passed across the country since 2010 are going to be introduced at the federal level. And so you've got working class people, poor people, women, people of color. They're going to be hit so much harder than they <coughs> So maybe this isn't a surprise, but I think it's going to hit people a lot harder this time around. In fact, just on Tuesday, there was a bill that passed in the House that would cause women to lose their insurance-covered access for abortion. Uh, I mean, this has been the status quo for 40 years. Another executive order reinstates the global gag rule. Well, does that happen under every Republican? Yes. But Donald Trump took it further. So usually what the global gag rule does is it stops funding for organizations that provide abortions. This freezes funding to NGOs in poor countries if they offer abortion counseling or advocate the right to seek abortion in their countries. This is going to cause women to die around the world. So he's taking these things much further than, say, a George W. Bush, for example.
So, so I'm I'm curious what you what, what you all think. And Boxer, I'll go there, and then we'll come back to Charles and 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 Ken. As soon as we get these comments, and we're going to come to the phones at four one zero three one nine eighty eight eighty eight. So do join in about where you think this is going. But but you know, Boxer. So you know, when you there was a, another tweet in from S- MSNBC's Joy Reid, uh, who tweeted in demoralized Trumpists. Uh, Secret Service cracking uh, Trump jokes, sparse crowds, and and uh, and and tweeted that in, and seen the things that Dave Zirin and Kianga Taylor have been writing about how that you know, there's been a lot of critique of the march, saying this is um, these were all kind of liberal white women on this march who ran this thing, uh, and that's why people aren't some some people are saying it's not as important, uh, but others like Kianga Taylor are kind of weighing in now, uh, saying that look, we this is as we've talked about in the show that. This is the first step in any movement uh, that begins to build. Uh, and so what is the response from the outside? If you can't literally stop, nor even be able to blunt it, stop these things from happening, then what is the political response? Is it to, to help build for electoral power? Is it something else? I mean, this is, and I, and I think that while we've seen this massive outpouring, the question is, how does that get organized? What comes next? Right. I, I think to some degree it's kind of all the, the above. As far as the, the nature of the, the march, I mean, it, w- it was the biggest demonstration in, in U.S. history. So I think that it's, it's, uh, it's, it's only a strange breed of, uh, of, of uh, person on the left who, who is immediately kind of um, uh, pessimistic about something that's just, just uh, now emerged. Um, you know, that being said, I think what people are pointing to is less this kind of like liberal character and whatnot. You know, it, listen, the mass of people in the United States that consider themselves progressives just do so not with any strong, you know, uh, ideological bearings, but because they know broadly that they stand for um, the expansion and protection of some social good, broadly that they want a more inclusive, tolerant society, at the very least don't want these things rolled back. These sorts of things, and I think the march kind of reflected that that broad um, sentiment. What I am potentially um, worried about, it, while still you know believing that politicization is a process, and, and and you know there's there's a lot of hope and promise in the march, is that we have a rehabilitation of a certain um, you know centrist wing of the Democratic Party. Let's say uh, not to just personalize it around her, but the Hillary Clinton wing of the Democratic Party. That I think. I actually, you know, I was on your program, surprised you invited me back, because I spent most of the last year telling you that Trump uh, didn't have much of a chance. <laughs> but, but, but at the time, you know, at the time I thought that, you know, Hillary Clinton could defeat Trump just because Trump is such an extraordinary, and the worst ways, uh, candidate, but she wouldn't be able to beat Trumpism. Um, and, she w- and her type of politics wouldn't be able to stem the tide of the the uh, you know right wing politics in the in the medium and long term and obviously it turns out um, you know um, the campaign couldn't do could do either so my worry is that if there's a rehabilitation of this wing of the the party then the election will now be um, blamed on certain contingent factors it'll be blamed on just the email leaks and just Russia's role or it'll be blamed on just the fact that Hillary Clinton is a you know is a supposedly bad you know campaigner or all these different kind of, um, you know, tactical questions. But of the broader strategic questions that people were starting to happen, have after the, the election, which is that, you know, why do Democrats have such a hard time relating to working people lately? And not just kind of the, the you know, white working class, which has been the, the question that has 
that dominated a lot of this discussion in November. But broadly, why did so many black and Latino and other minority voters, other core constituency in the Democratic um, base, um, not feel as inspired to turn out than they have in, in previous um, you know, years? Right. So I think the Sanders wing of the party actually had some sort of coherent narrative in response to that. And in a sense, if this movement against Trump becomes too broad tent and aims all of its um, anger and energy against Trump as a figure and doesn't reserve any critique or organization against um, certain wings of the Democratic Party, I think that's a potential uh, problem. It'd be as if the Tea Party emerged with, uh, you know, Bob Dole as one of its uh, figureheads. You know, it really just doesn't quite, you know, make sense to, to tap into this broad anti-establishment populist mood um, in the country. But overall, of course, I'm, I'm optimistic. I think that's a big part of it. And I think that electoral work can play a big role, but it can't just be like the anti-war movement in the you know mid two thousands when people just said get it, get Bush out of there, put anyone else in there, so, and uh, get any Democrats in there, and they'll take care of the rest themselves. So let me let me get so, so, so yeah, so Mark, so the the big key here, you know, the protest is going to be a big you know function or a big element of this this sort of movement to resist what Trump and congressional Republicans are doing. That that goes without saying. That's just one element. That's just one that's not the total strategy. That should not be the total strategy. And to you know, going back to there was a comment regarding one activist who said, Well we just should be ungovernable. Anarchy is not the answer to anything. That's just everything falling apart. And that also assumes that we've exhausted all options and and we have not. One thing that I'm not hearing people talk about, uh, particularly Democrats are the, you know, the, the tremendous amount of potential activity that could be unleashed on the state and local level. No one wants to talk about the state and local level. We talk about presidential elections every four years. People turn out, barely turn out for that. Remember now, over 40% of the, of the uh, eligible voting populace did not turn out for this election. A lot of people tapped out. This is what you get when you tap out. Every two years, barely 40% of, of eligible voting Americans show up for congressional midterms. Everybody was all, you know, exasperated with President Obama because they felt like he didn't do enough. Well, it's like, well, hey, you didn't come out for the congressional midterms and ensure that he had the type of backup on Capitol Hill to make sure that he passed the type of policy you like. So what are you complaining about? And then we have this situation where 36 out of 50 state legislatures right now are dominated by Republicans which gives them the ability to dominate the redistricting process and to get a majority of state legislative districts and congressional house districts. We have, we have already, we have two elections, two major elections in which Democrats and progressives too could be, or could be mobilizing in New Jersey and Virginia and, and, and could, and could do, a, do a sort of a test run and experiment with effective political strategy and mobilization gearing up for state legislative races, which are going to be taking place in a, and gubernatorial races and congressional midterms that are going to be taking place in 2018. So you have an uh, opportunity here to replace Chris Christie in New Jersey, make sure you have a Democratic governor there, and you have that Democratic majority in, in Trenton in the House. And then in Virginia, you have an opportunity to make sure that you get another Democrat in the governor's mansion and that you retake the state house in Richmond back from Republicans. Uh, but right now, what I'm seeing is Democrats, and I'm seeing a lot of progressives, too, nobody's paying attention to that. And they're about to acquiesce to Republicans once again in major states, particularly Virginia. If, if, if Democrats let Virginia go this year, 
I mean, that, that'll be like a real, that, that, that'll be extremely bad. And Republicans will say, well, you know, Democrats don't care. See, we, we need to kind of take some cues from the Republican playbook, what they've been doing over the past 10 to 15 years, how they've, how they basically worked their way up and dominated things on the state level, especially. And then, last point, you've got dozens of big city mayoral elections that are taking place, including places like New York City, for example. That's a great opportunity for Democrats to tap into some of that, that energy, that untapped energy amongst black and Latino voters in major urban centers. You know, see if you can identify candidates or identify creative ways to get them reengaged. Political, at the end of the day, Republicans are not going to respond to protests they're going to respond to existential political threats. They're going to ex- they're going to respond to threats that unseat them. Okay, we have and to, that's where we so, have to start looking very carefully. We have, at uh, have to, we have, I have to, we have to well. take a break here. So we're going to come right back. Uh, Ken and Judy, the first two callers are up, going to come to your call and and talk about this chasm that still does exist between some minority communities and the white world in terms of resistance to what's going on and and Democrats and other folks. And can that come together? 410-319-8888. We'll be back with Boxer Sankara, Rose Aguilar, and Charles Ellison. Stay with us. Welcome back, folks. I'm here with Rose Aguilar, host of Your Call Radio on KALW in San Francisco, Boxer Sankara, founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine, Charles Ellison, uh, host of the Ellison Report for WEA, where he also works as national correspondent, and you all at 410-319-8888. And uh, let me go to the phones. I'm going to come back and deal with the question of protests outside, inside, and the split that's always happened in this country, and can it be overcome? And I mean split along many racial and ethnic lines in this country. 410-319-8888 is the number. Uh, Ken, you're on the air. Welcome. Thank you. Good morning. Morning. Um, question for you. Well, it's, just, it's, it's two brief questions, but it, it boggles my mind. Last night I stayed up to almost 2 o'clock listening to Anderson Cooper and Don Lemon. Why are Republicans so willingly to, in their tone, show dismay for what he said about the 3.5 million illegal votes, but yet not actually saying to him, get off this, let's just get off this topic. You have no evidence. Let's move forward. And my second question is, um, how, do we, how do we get to make the Democratic presence more abundant? Because it doesn't seem like, I think one of your, your, your guests mentioned it earlier, it's almost as if they're non-existent, just allowing this stuff to happen and not showing any opposition. And again, thank you for the comment that these midterm elections, these mayoral, government, governor races, we need to get out and vote. And if we don't, we can't complain. Thank you. So, so there's a, there's a lot there. And so, Rose, let me jump back to you first. Um, just in terms of your response, and I think that this is this is there's, there's a, but I think there is a real disconnect here between. Um, the push from the outside, the push from the inside, and people want to work within the Democratic Party, want to work outside the Democratic Party, uh, and also this kind of very, I think, uh, deep split that happens a great deal um, in our country for many reasons because of the depth of our races past and present um, that makes it very difficult to make this the organi- organizing take place. Well, I think to Charles' last point about getting involved at the state and local level, People really need to read about gerrymandering and really educate yourself about what is happening with gerrymandering. Because in 2012, Democratic House candidates 
won almost, well, 1.7 million more votes than Republicans, to be exact. 1.7 million more votes than Republicans, but Republicans got a 33-seat advantage, which is a clear result of gerrymandering. Now, this is redistricting. So one year you might be in a certain district, and the next year you might be out of that district. And the next time these maps are going to be redrawn is in 2021. So we're going to be with this for a little while, but you should get involved in your local and state organizations to get involved to redraw these maps. There's also racial gerrymandering. In fact, on Friday, a federal appeals court ruled that the state of Alabama engaged in racial gerrymandering in 12 districts to preserve a Republican supermajority. Now, Democrats use this, but not as much as Republicans. So this is a very important issue. And there was a book called Rat Est, and the author's name escaped me, but Mark, you should have this guy on. Rat's and Nest? Rat Est. F-U-C, Rat Est. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. It's very good because there seems, there's such a disconnect between, even in the Democratic Party, a lot of Southern Democrats talked to Nancy Pelosi, for example, about redistricting and gerrymandering. And he said, you've got to do something about this. And she didn't take him seriously. Now, when do you ever hear Democrats talk about gerrymandering? Hardly ever. Even though they're getting trounced across the country. So it's so important to get involved at the state level. Here in California, just to let everyone know, the Democrats won overwhelmingly in November. The Democrats actually have a supermajority in our state capitol, which means Democrats do not need one Republican vote to raise taxes or to pass legislation. So you got to put pressure also on the moderate Democrats because, hey, the Dems are in power here in California. Why don't we have single-payer health care? And if you just taking Alabama for a moment, you have Alabama that, and, and we've been, I've been covering a lot in Alabama recently just and looking at it. Um, it's also a state where 30-some percent of black votes can black people cannot vote mm. because yeah. of because they've because they've been arrested. Thirty percent, thirty percent. Besides their onerous laws to keep people from voting that have taken That's place in Alabama. And voter suppression. I mean, you know, we have an election and then we move on. And what has really changed since the year two thousand, when so many black voters were purged from the rolls in Florida? Not much. I mean, voter suppression is such a massive issue with voter ID laws, and it's just going to get worse under the Trump administration. And, and Mark, to your caller's first question, I think you said, why aren't the Republicans taking Trump on about these lies that are coming from the administration? Is that right? Right. Well, there's an article in the Washington Post that everybody needs to read. It's called The First Days Inside Trump's White House, Fury to oh, yeah. Come Boot. And about a dozen White House staffers spoke off the record with two reporters and said, Trump turned on the TV and saw the Women's March and was so angry about it. And he basically told Sean Spicer to go out there and lie to the people about the inauguration crowd. So this is the kind of person that we're dealing with right now. This is a very revealing article. The fact that a dozen staffers gave the Washington Post this information during the first week of this presidency speaks volumes. And, and and Charles, very quickly, because I'm going to get to back to the phone chain, get to back to Boxara, Boxara, excuse me. Um, the, I mean that that is what we are up against. So I think the organizing has to happen on a state level and local right. levels. That is where the future may be. But a lot of damage can be done between now and then. Right. A lot right. of damage. Right. A, a, a lot of damage can be done, but I think that it's you know time is of the essence in terms of exploiting 
uh, opportunities that are in the here and now as far as what you can do on the grassroots organizational level, but you know just kind of looking at it from from a shrewd uh, politic uh, you know, sort of political strategist point of view. Uh, there are some open opportunities out there to, one, kind of throw a shot across the bow of Republicans uh, on the state uh, and congressional level to show them, hey, you know, we mean business. We're gearing up for 2018. And also to find some creative ways to get your base ginned up, you know, especially those, those coalition voters, you know, folks like black and Latino voters that you're trying to inspire, you're trying to, you know, get them reengaged, and, and, and also a lot of millennials as well, you know, take advantage of some of those, those, those city races, those city council and mayor races that are taking place as well. As I mean, just happened at, here at in Baltimore, moment, I might add. At the moment, Democrats and, and progressives are going to have, they seem a bit fractured, and folks are going to have to unify around one common theme, and that's to win. I mean, do you want to win, or don't you want to win? I mean, and folks are going to have to make up their mind and also find some key issues, some key policy issues, like three or four, that, that everybody can agree on and then move forward and try to win in 2017 and then win big in 2018. So let me go to the phones, come right back to, uh, to Baksara. 410-319-8888. Judy, you're on the air. Thank you, my call. Thank you for calling. Um, I have a couple points to make. I think we need to be really pointed in how we say things and not box them in sort of nice phraseology. Donald Trump is a megalomaniac. He clearly, if he is upset of numbers and he has to have people go out and say, mine was the biggest and greatest ever in the entire world, what's, what's wrong with him? What, what does it matter? So he has some deep psychological issues. Two, what he's inculcating right now is fascism. And I'm not just talking the brown shirt fascism. I'm talking about the marriage of state and corporation. He has vested interest in those pipelines that, they're, that they're, he's reinstated, the building of them as do all of his cabinet members. And it's against the ethics rules of the United States, and everybody somehow seems to think that he doesn't have to follow the rules. And I think that all of us need to call up our Democratic congressmen and say, if you don't stand up and do something, we're voting you out. I'm tired of passive Democrats in Congress and so-called in power. I think Nancy Pelosi needs to be held to account because, again, she's a mega millionaire herself. A lot of these people are captured by big money, and they, too, are, whole, are held to the same account as the Republicans. It's all about big money and politics. And I think we, the people, need to be ready to boycott, to march in the street, and if it comes down to it, to sit down and resist, because the way India won its independence was to not cooperate with the British rule. And we have to look at non-cooperation and, and really get ready and hunker down and get ready for a real fight. Thank you, Mark. Uh, Judy, I appreciate the call. And I, and I think, you know, Baksha, let me turn to you first, uh, since I said I would on this. I mean, I think that, um, you know, I, I, we, Valerie and I, my wife and I were talking about this this morning, that, you know, you, you watch what's going on right now in the Trump White House. It's, it's just, it's mind-boggling how the things he says can be said, and this keeps moving forward. Um, and I think that that anger that Judy is talking about, the danger she's talking about, uh, is very real. Um, and I think that we, if we, we really make a mistake to, to, to downplay that, uh, and also in terms of our response. Right, absolutely. And, and you know, obviously, I agree, I agree with a lot of those the sentiments and the anger. One, one thing that I would say is that I'm wary about this just becoming polarized um, around Trump's uh, personality, because I think that, that plays to his advantage uh, somewhat, because mm-hmm. he's going to have his core of supporters, and we're going to have our core mm-hmm. of, of 
of ours. And, you know, it, I, I don't think the, the discussion and the, the organizing will really be pushed forward. So one historical right. analogy that I often think to is the resistance to Berlusconi in Italy and why it was so ineffective. And Berlusconi's rise in many ways mirrors the rise of Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. But in both cases, it seems, in the Italian case as it developed, um, the opposition of Berlusconi was often framed on very kind of like legalistic grounds, like grounds of like ethics, and pushed through primarily through the courts and also through the um, and also through the media. And I'm afraid that this is kind of like a weak political um, response. So we definitely need to figure out a way to cohere networks together to make sure that there's constant mobilizations against mm-hmm. Trump. And this obviously takes a lot of grassroots organizing. So we need to turn what was just, you know, a mobilization over the weekend into something more concrete and lasting. And, you know, the Tea Party is the best example we have, um, you know, in modern U.S. history of something like that. They obviously had a huge advantage of that. It's a lot easier to organize, you know, um, people in defense of, you know, what are essentially capitalist interests than to organize poor people in defense of, you know, their interests. You know, the odds are, are stacked against us. But, um, but I think that's kind of the way forward. But the more that it seems like we're going to continue to have this conversation be polarized around Trump's personality, around yeah. the things that, that we he says um, with this Russian debate, it was around his you know, very democratic legitimacy. Uh, And, you know, I'm not against that in principle. I just, I'm afraid that it won't be a winning strategy to actually construct something different. We can't just be a bunch of, you know, antis. We actually need to put forward a positive program for the policies that we would want a a different sort of government. But but let me me just break in here for a moment. Just a second, just just a second, Charles. Um... So I'm going to go to Rose, and we'll come right to to, to phones, and right back to Charles Ellison. And I, but I, I think this is a really important point um, that one of the ways Rose that Donald Trump was able to make his victory happen um, was his personality, and was the emotion with which he approached this, and the anger I think many people had, um, a plurality of people had in this country, to the status, what's happening in this country. Um, and to their lives, but also around the issues of, of immigration and race and more. So, but part of so she, so while we, it's it's kind of hard, I think, in the process to ignore um, what Trump and his allies bring to this and what they can do. And I think that's what Judy was saying that we can be really blind to this uh, and to our own detriment. Well, and it's multi-layered, but you talk to a lot of union workers who voted for Trump, and they're just, they were going to go for either Bernie or Trump. I mean, Right, exactly. Right, and so many members of unions who have never voted for a Republican before. I mean, so many rural people who voted for Obama voted for Trump, because obviously we know the reasons. They cannot make ends meet. Their unions have been decimated. You know, they're losing their jobs. They don't have health care. I mean, just look at all of the people who are sadly ODing on heroin. I mean, this is a crisis across this country. He tapped into that. And, you know, I traveled when I went to South Dakota. I saw so many Hillary Clinton ads that did not tell people why they should vote for her. She she told people why they should vote against Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That wasn't good enough. In fact, when she became the candidate and he became the candidate, I knew he was going to crush her on trade. I mean, the Democrats really have no decent policy on jobs and trade. I mean, it's just these talking points, and people are rolling their eyes, and they're tired of it. 
And that is not going to change unless we see a real policy put in place that talks to people who are struggling across this country. I mean, you don't have to go to rural America to see people struggling. It's happening in San Francisco. I mean, the media keeps saying, we need to go out to rural Oklahoma. Okay, well, that's fine. But, you know, take a bus in D.C. I mean, it's not hard to find people who are struggling. And and your caller makes a great point. I mean, this is a, a a, a corporate takeover of the U.S. government. I mean, look at the cabinet picks. This is very different from George W. Yes, were these people CEOs? Yes. But these are multimillionaires and billionaires, and their agenda is pretty clear. They're not sort of poo-pooing it and saying, no, 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 they're putting everything out there for people to see. I mean, this is what people are up against, and you've got to hit it at all levels. And the other thing, Mark, is because we're losing so much local media, I think that's why there's so much attention on Washington, D.C. When Cory Booker voted against that Bernie Sanders amendment recently, it would have allowed Americans to get their drugs from Canada. I mean, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, most people wouldn't even know who Cory Booker is, right? But because we're losing our local media, there's so much attention on Washington. And that's why it's so important to support independent media you know, even if there's one website that keeps track of what's going on at City Hall, that is so, it's so important to support that website. Who is your supervisor? Go get to know her or him. Put their phone numbers in your phone. Call them on a regular basis. You, you, I mean, you've got to hit this at all levels. It's going to take so much work. But also educate people. There's so many people who are not engaged and want to be, and they just don't know what to do. So, you know, you've got to hit this at all levels. It's going to take so- a lot of work. So on the way back to the phones, Charles, why don't you jump in and I'll get to Winston, our next caller. Yeah, yeah, Baskier and Rose are, are spot on, uh, especially, you know, Baskier's original point. Uh, you know, every movement down to your grassroots neighborhood movement is a campaign. And Campaign 101 is you persuade people to come to your side to see your perspective, your point of view, to sign on to that. It, it can't be about why you shouldn't vote for or support the, the opposition or the other guy. And so I, I, I'm fearing that, that already Democrats, progressives, people who are against what, what Trump and congressional uh, Republicans are implementing are just focusing on Trump. Trump is going to do Trump, okay? That, that's, that's, just, that's just a given. Uh, what, what has to happen is, yeah, you, you can generate some energy and, and, and a sense of urgency around some of these very crazy uh, fascist-level type things that we're seeing happening right now but at the end of the day uh the opposition is going to have to be unified and democrats and progressives especially are one they're going to have to come up with a very plain spoken persuasive message around some very uh some very resonant policy issues things that you know real you know kitchen table quality of life issues that everyone can agree on that people need to get behind and they need to push that type of messaging and those issues and show why people need to put Democrats back in power in Congress or why in four years they need to put a Democrat back in the White House and they need to keep pushing that. That's what Republicans do. And so you're gonna what you're gonna end up making the mistake of what happened in two thousand sixteen, making the campaign all or or making the movement all about Trump. And it shouldn't be about Trump. It should be about larger issues. It should be about things that people are worried about on a, on a day-to-day basis as they're trying to make it from paycheck to paycheck. You know, those types of issues. Not about what Trump tweeted the other day or the outrageous thing. He said, yeah, we have to pay attention to those, and we have to also generate some, some anger 
and folks, you know, in a sense of urgency about that. But 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 you're going to have to come up with your with your own sort of persuasive kind of of, of message and movement, something that people will feel comfortable signing on to. And frankly, that's what made Hillary Clinton such a disastrous candidate last year. So let me reopen the phones here, 410-319-8888. Winston, you're on the air. Welcome. Enjoy your show, my first first time caller. Welcome. Welcome, Winston. Welcome to you, sir. Look, I... I think I have a solution to that problem, but won't nobody hear me. We, I've, I've, I've researched this. We have 4,000 churches in Baltimore. So if we could 10 churches in each of these communities buy and go to the bank, get the, get the money that it takes to buy up everything that John Hopkins and everybody else haven't brought, put it, we got senior citizens here that begging to make a little more income. So if, they, if we could give them $304 a week to teach our children, we could buy this property, restore our own, and each part of our city would have its own, own, own government. We don't, we don't, Donald Trump and all of the, all of those people, if you don't know by now, they're not here for us. And we're slower than they think. So I, I suggest that we fight our churches and tell our, our ministers to, to, to unite. We need to unite for each other. Nobody else can help us for the house. And they are the Ways and Means Committee because they have the clout and the properties and everything it needs to go to the bank to get anything they want to invest in our properties. I'll listen to what you think about that. Thank you. So Winston clearly is talking uh, right here, Rose, about us going local and going local hard. Rose? Oh, yes. I'm saying Winston was clearly just saying here we need to go local and go local hard. I mean, that's that's one strategy. I think that's important. And also, you know, Mark, I know the show's going to end soon, but mm-hmm. I think it's important uh, to end on kind of a positive note. Go ahead. Remind- Let's start that roll. Go ahead. Well, <laughs> to remind ourselves that when you look at where the people stand on issues, I mean, you've got almost 80% of the population favoring the, uh, the overturning of Citizens United. One of your callers brought up money in politics. And I've had so many people on my show who say that Nancy Pelosi raises about $100 million a year for Democrats. You know, no one can touch her in a city like San Francisco. She's going to be in the House until she retires. About 70% of Americans think that taxes should be raised on the wealthy. Almost 70% support a $15 minimum wage. Seven in 10, 70% support Roe v. Wade. This is the highest level of support for this decision ever. So you've got high percentages of support for so many progressive issues. But when you look at how politicians vote, they vote the complete opposite way. And a couple professors at Princeton studied this and said, this shows that this, this country is not a democracy. So it's important to, to note that when you talk to the people, 90 million people didn't vote. If you sit down with them and you don't use the word Democrat or Republican, you talk to them about education and health care and wages, you know, seven out of ten times, they want higher taxes for the rich. They want a higher minimum wage. They want good health care. I mean, it's just important to remember that. Which I think, I'm sorry, Rose, go ahead. Well, it's especially at a time when the media constantly says this country is divided. I I just think that it's really dangerous. The the Republican Party has pretty much hijacked Washington. Uh, We can obviously criticize the Democrats, but I think it's very false to say that this country is divided. 
I think that that's an. I mean, so that I mean, you know, one of the things that Aaron Gupta said in the show the other week. Um, Am I still on? Pardon? Am I? Who? Uh, that one of the things that Aaron Gupta uh, said said on the show the other week, and thanks for that call, Winston, um, was was just similar similar to what Rose was saying. And that, but he was also talking about how we really also just can't always be so getting into all these kind of nuanced policy questions and and not and and being very serious and hitting the gut and heart for people that want to come over and be excited by it. I think that one of the problems is, has been just that because so many times the Democrats have been so with such a dearth of real belief in the policies around trade and more and things that Rose is talking about that we really have to hit it where people can understand it, feel it, and and also for for pe- politicians and political movements to begin to understand exactly what people feel so they can touch that and make something happen. I mean, that I think that is 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 is, is where we may be going, at least I hope so, Boxar. Boxar? Mm-hmm. Sorry, I just lost service for a second. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that, that you know, well, a few things. For, for one, I, I think it's very tempting for us to say, okay, the state is in the control of these very bad people. We need to go local and, and, and think about what we could do in our communities and what sort of resources we could rally together and, and leverage. But we forget the fact that, you know, whether we want anything to do with the government and the state, someone's going to be running it, and it's going to be run in certain priorities, right? Mm. So I, I still think that the classic kind of mode of we organize in our communities where we try to leverage and take control of the state and use it in the interest of, of working people is still the, still the way to, to go about it. Um, and I think a lot of these, these plans that, that revolve on, on building community power through, um, you know, leveraging the resources of community organizations and so on, like, ultimately just can't be big enough to, to really make, uh, make a difference. But I do definitely agree with what, um, what Rose was, what was saying, and I, I think that's a key um, point, that Trump, one, doesn't have a mandate, and two, broadly, there is a kind of consensus in this country for a social democratic um, you know, politics, for broadly a politics that says, you know, we need more social goods, and these things benefit the vast majority of people. And at core, the appeal, how do you, how do you get people to go from today to, to fighting for those concrete things like universal health care and free public higher education? Part of this is a kind of a simple populist appeal that says to people, you know, you don't have enough and you deserve more. And we know the people responsible for you not having enough. And that's, you know, Sanders called them the millionaires and billionaires. You know, it's a different set of people than the demagoguery of, you know, Trump, which will set people against, you know, immigrants and, and minorities and, and so on. But at court, it shares kind of a simple messaging. And that's something that a lot of centrist Democrats, the Cory Bookers of the world, the Hillary Clintons of the world, just don't have. And I think it plays the advantage of, of you know, the Sanders wing of the party, that they do have that simple, easily digestible narrative. So, and, and uh, Charles, we only have a few minutes left here, so let, we're about to go to a news break here. As before we do, please throw in your final thoughts. Yeah, so, I, you know, I think that the approach, the strategy has to be holistic. And, you know, I think that you can have uh, a lot of, of, of energy, a lot of activity on the state local level while you're simultaneously applying pressure on, on the federal level, on Capitol Hill. I mean, you saw what happened last month, for example, when Republicans tried to sneak through 
the um, the the elimination of the of, of the House Ethics Office, and um, and it really wasn't Trump's tweet which which prompted them to reverse that decision. Uh, it was really just a, an enormous amount of pressure from calls, from phone calls, people flooding the the Capitol Hill switchboard with calls expressing their outrage about that movie because they found out because then it suddenly went viral on social media and there were even people from their districts calling. But you know at this point, I mean, Trump makes a very good point when he and he said this like on Saturday, and you, you kind of have to give him a little credit for this where he's saying, well, you know, where where, where were you know when he was talking about Saturday, his response to the protest, and he's like, well. You know, where were all these people, you know, on Election Day? Where, where were a lot of these people voting? I mean, that's, and at the end of the day, I mean, we can cite whatever poll we want to about what people are opposed to that Trump is putting in place. But at the end of the day, do those polls translate into votes? Are people setting up an infrastructure uh, that's, that ultimately is going to send a message by unseating people um, or, or electing the types of, of, of elected officials that we need, the types of fighters that we need on Capitol Hill, in our state houses, and in our city halls. I, I'm not seeing that yet. I mean, even in state races, for example, I mean, barely 20% of Americans know who their state representative or their state senator is. You know, and, and the last 2014 congressional midterm, we only had 36% voter turnout. You know, so that, that, that's, that's not... That's not how a democracy functions. So we shouldn't have any expectation of a of a of a of a, of a meaningful um, a democracy that's working and in, in, in out to our benefit if we're not participating in the political process. If we're not teaching our kids, if we're not teaching young people how to engage um, in the political process, it's not rocket science. Anyone can do it. It's actually easier to do that than some of the other things that we're proposing. Um, that, that, you know, in terms of pushing a movement forward. So I want to thank all of you. This has been great. Charles Ellison, good to have you with us. Host of the Ellison Report here on WEA every Sunday night at 9 o'clock. National correspondent for EA. Charles, good to have you on this, and your voice in the air with us. Always good, man. Rose Aguilar. Thank you. Uh, I want to uh, hope you keep coming back. It's always good to have your really very serious analysis and thoughts here. Host of your call radio, KLW in San Francisco. Thank you so much for being with us as well. Thank you, Mark. And Box Ellison Car, don't worry. We always want you on the air. Whether you predicted this or not, <laughs> you, know, you know what? Law of averages. I'm going to start. Getting That's it. <laughs> Family editor of Jacobin, senior editor in these times. Thank you so much as well for joining us. And we're going to take a very short break. When we come back from this break, we're going to look at the Oscar nominations and more, and uh, have our monthly look at booth stories uh, with another new artist coming to the airwaves to talk about their work. Stay with us. Mm-hmm. 